So I've been asked to uh, share share with you a few uh, a few minutes. Uh, my impressions and perhaps insights and whatever um, in connection with my Baravi Avavan Nechusin. Let me start off by saying that what I'm going to say is uh, is personal. In other words, it's not biographical and it's not uh, summatory. Um, I'm going to discuss a few things that that I uh, that I know I felt. Which may, uh, on one end, may result in the fact that it's irrelevant to anybody else because it's personal, and therefore it may not be transferable. And on the other end, uh, maybe dafka that will be make it make it uh, possible. Uh, so I'm going to discuss a few points, but let me start off with uh, the most personal thing as to uh, why I'm here and how I got into this. And. I met Bavar uh, Lichtenstein when I was 15 years old, and I entered his shir in Shan Aleph in Yeshivat uh, Gitzchak Hanan in the old country. And I was, uh, you know, I was an American teenager. Well, not the typical American teenager, but the typical New York Orthodox Jewish American teenager. And I had a good education. I went to Yeshiva, you know, Yeshiva High School. I never met anybody uh, similar in uh, in some of the ways which we'll discuss to Rabbi Lichtenstein. And that undoubtedly was impressive, and I'm sure I was impressed by that. But, uh, okay, so I would have I would have reacted. At what moment did I realize that this was a different world, that I was in a different a different kind of experience that my education had, had prepared me? I remember the I remember the day and the incident very, very clearly. Uh, I've uh, described this more than once, so perhaps somebody has heard it before. And about a month, not exactly, about a month into the year, sometime uh, either in Elul or in Tishrei, and at that time, 1965, two years before the 67 war, and, and therefore two years more or less also before what at the time was the uh, awakening of Soviet Jewry. When I was a child growing up, we I assume we knew, I don't remember, we, we knew there were Jews in the Soviet Union, but they weren't on this planet. I mean, there was like no connection. Mentally, psychologically, it was just like it was like it was like it was like talking about a Sarasashvatan. And I'm saying that even though my own family, I mean I I, I also my, my, my grandfather had a sister in Moscow to whom he wrote and didn't get uh, replies. But it was like, it was like beyond the Iron Curtain meant beyond the Iron Curtain. That year, Elie Wiesel had traveled to the Soviet Union and had visited all sorts of Jews and, and he came back and he wrote a book which was called The Jews of Silence. He made up the phrase. And before the book was published, so an excerpt, a chapter of it was excerpted in a American uh, glossy magazine called Life Magazine. If you've heard of it, it's been out of print for 45 years. And one day, Rilakhasin came into Shir and said he has something he wants to read to us. I have to give a little bit of Akdava. Was it the first time he was reading it? He must have read it at home before he came in to read it to us. Undoubtedly. Probably read it more than once. He began to read the section. Uh, the story, remember exactly, the story is that uh, it was on Sukkot and Wiesel visited in some small town. He had been there and there was one Sukkot there that existed. 
an old uh, Jew had built a sukkah, and a few people had come together sitting at the table, and basically the Jew said to them, you know, we're the last Jews in the world, and after all old people, and after we die, there won't be any more sukkahs anymore, any more Jews. And he, in his own inimical uh, manner, and, and literary skills, uh, which I don't have, uh, described the incident. But Wilkinson is reading this section. And afterwards, I'd been a month in the Shia. The Shia was fantastic. The Shia, we learned, uh, we learned Gitta, and there was, uh, more, a uh, hundred times more London than I ever heard in my life. He's reading this section, word for word. He's just reading it to us. And in the middle, he is unable to continue. He, his voice choked up, and he simply couldn't continue talking, and we sat there for another minute, and we got up and we walked out of the room. And that was the point that I, uh, I said, I'm speaking personally now, that was the point that I became a Talmud of Moveinu Vabeinu Vabeinu To say that he was a bigger lamb than anybody I ever met was obvious, but I imagine in my mind, then and <coughs> even now, there were other lamb in the world, maybe even bigger lamb Two years later, I was in the Rav Shir. It's also a great Shir. There were people who were artists or poets or people who were sympathetic, etc. But to me, the idea that this person of such incredible intellect could not only feel, but was in such lack of control of his emotions that on reading it the second or the third, fourth time, still would be overwhelmed by what he was reading. And mind you, I mean, we were, of course, we were young. None of us were overwhelmed by the state to it because we were just cynical American kids. Was something that I, I couldn't even imagine that a person could be could, could could combine so many such disparate points of personality together. And I was fortunate enough to be to be an issue. That's how that's how I began my uh, apprenticeship by uh, by Ravari. There is, um, in theory, there's a machlokas among historians, and I imagine also among uh, Anshay Musa in history. It's a machlokas between the great main theory of history or the uh, system theory of history. There's, uh, there's a natural tendency for people to uh, pick the great people, you know, Napoleon, uh, Alexander the Great, whatever, write their biographies because they're the important uh, factors in history. And, neg- and against that, there's this movement in history that says, you know, one man doesn't make a difference. You have to examine uh, economics or uh, basic social trends and one person more or less does not make a difference. Similarly, in Musa, there's also, I wouldn't call it a machlokas, but there are these two different emphases. You can uh, talk about how, you know, this, we, we naturally tend to think of Gdolim, you know, like one particular person who introduced this idea or this effect on the people with whom he's, with whom he's speaking, with whom he's living. And the other thing would be to talk about or to try to understand the general trends, where did you grow up, who, what educational system were you in, uh, uh, you grew up in a democracy, in a modern Western world, or an ancient world, or what school you went to. These things affect your personality and your connection to Kaddish And so what, what I'm going to talk about now, and I'm not sure if Lichasin would agree, is the great man theory of, of, uh, of Musa, of Yiddishkeit. That's what I'm going to describe now. Is how have Lichtenstein affected myself and I think other people who um, who, who knew him? Uh, completely divorced from uh, from the uh, social trends and and tendencies and effects uh, of, in my case, to go back to the beginning as I started to now, uh, 45, 50 years ago, and in any in any other time. It might be incorrect, but I'm describing what I what I uh, what I understand. But Lichtenstein himself would sometimes, uh, he did this in a, he was talking, when he gave a hesper for, uh, for somebody, he mentioned that in his life, the three people had a tremendous influence on his lives. 
three Rabbanim. Three Rabbanim were Hutner, Ravarin, Salvechik, and the Rav. He said this in his Hesfit for Rav Hutner, and he said the following statement. He said, oh, he, no, sorry, he said this in his Hesfit for Ravarin Salvechik. Uh, he gave a Hesfit here in Yeshiva, and he said, when I was young, he was in Ravarin Shir when he was 13, he said, when I was younger, I, I made a mistake. It was my, it was my, it was my foolishness. But I imagined that someday I could be like Ravar and Soloveitchik. Later on I realized that, that was ridiculous. He was just, you know, he wasn't in my league. As opposed to the Rav, who I never even imagined that I could be, that I, that I could be like the Rav. And then he explained why Ravaran had that affected him, what he'd mind around. He wanted to be like Ravaran. Uh, what he called his foolishness to be able to do that. Um, so when he said that, I, uh, because I'm even more foolish, but I remembered how when I was 15, 16 years old, uh, the reason why Ravadin has a certain effect on my life was because I imagined in my foolishness that someday I could be like Ravadin Dechnesi. Never imagined that I would be like, that I would be like the Rav who I met, who I met later. And that's really, uh, I don't know how true it is of other people, but uh, it was so true that I remember my mother complaining about how uh, she thought I was like imitating Ravadin which was probably true. Uh, since then, I've stopped imitating Ravarin, uh, but maybe some other things have, 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 have worn off. But why, why is that true? Like why? Ravarin just said then that, you know, but the Rav was too great. I think it's more than that. The Rav wasn't a model. It wasn't just that the, 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 the percentage was too high. It was like a million times greater. He wasn't a model for any of us. He was an individual. He was unique. He was, he was a different kind of a person. But in most ways that we could see, Rav Aaron appeared to be the same kind of person that we were. Just a million times better. Which then, with a certain amount of work, perhaps you could aspire to be. And the uh, Ramital sometimes would speak with different, about different people. He would speak about the value of normalcy. In the Yeshivish world, normalcy is a, to be normal is an, is an insult. It's supposed to be special. It's supposed to be unusual. Mita uh, really liked normalcy. So I don't think he ever used it about Rav Lichtenstein, but Rav Lichtenstein really was normal, but in a very abnormal way. It wasn't normal because he was um, average. Normalcy didn't mean average. Rav Lichtenstein was, was extremely not average. It was, it was really was unique in many ways. But it wasn't based on um, taking one idea or one particular meter and 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 racing it to the end, and therefore divorcing himself from the rest of us. He had, he started with the same values and interests that most of us had, including things which might be trivial, and in, in another sense, I mean, in some sense it's a hesped, maybe I have to say this in hesped, but some things about Rav Lichtenstein would in other, other contexts, meaning like Shvat might appear a little bit weird. Rav Lichtenstein was, it was known among the Americans in Yeshiva, that till 1957, that was the goal, you could ask him anything about United States baseball statistics, and he knew the answer. One time, Rav Tavori, somebody came to visit the yeshiva in the base medrash, a father with a young child. So Rav Tavori was kidding around with him, so he told the kid, the kid was eight years old, he said, you see that man over there? Go ask him about who was the MVP in 1942 in the American League. So the kid did it. You know, Rukhsin didn't have a long beard, he looked like just another one of the guys in the base medrash, you know, not afraid. He asked him, Rukhsin looked at him and said, I don't know the answer. Rav Tavori would tell the story much better. He looked at him and said, you know, of course, Ellie, 1942, the American League. 
Ty Cobb? No, no, too late. Uh, Hank Greenberg, too early. Whatever. He said, of course he knew that. And it wasn't because he was... It, it, when he grew up, that was part of the... That, that was one of the things he picked up. And yet... And yet... There was a certain factor, which I'm going to try now to describe, which which turned all of that into into a value. So it wasn't you being normal because being abnormal was bad. It was being normal because normalcy by Vodat Hashem is the value of being of being in this world. And what I want to talk about is this quality of Avodas Hashem, being an Eved, being an Eved Hashem. The Matseva in Yerushalayim says on it, Eved Hashem. That's the only words that appear on, on the, on the Matseva. Um, so, what does it mean to be an Eved Hashem? There's a chug I gave this year, I talked about it at, uh, you know, somewhere at length, and I'll talk about a different, slightly different aspect of it. I'll talk about one thing. An Eved has commitment. He's committed to, he's not just living to live. An Eved Hashem. He has commitment to, to, he, he's in service. He's serving a certain ideal. In, uh, there was a Sikha that Rukhassin gave in America, he think he gave it every single year. And here he also gave Yeshiva, but in a slightly different form. I don't remember the whole Sikha, but I remember one line. It was a Sikha why we were just young, we were first year in Yeshiva then, uh, but it was why you should eventually go into Chinuch. That's basically what the, what the Sikha was about. And he quoted there a letter written by Rav Aliyah Kaplan. Rav Aliyah Kaplan was a, uh, uh, at the time, he was a fairly young uh, person, right after World War I. In, uh, in Eastern Europe, in Lita. Later on, he became the uh, Rosh Hashiva of Hildesheimer in Berlin. He died at a young age. He died in his 30s. But in Lita, after World War One, World War One left the Jewish community in Eastern Europe in shambles. And so he and one or two other people uh, were organized this movement to run around and to build schools in different... Build schools for girls, I think. Uh, maybe also for boys. He was building schools in different communities. Uh, today, we don't look at World War One because we're... We're obsessed with World War II. After World War I, basically the Jewish communities were also destroyed. Not so much death, but the communities themselves were destroyed. And he writes this letter to his wife. The first half of the letter, which is very, very beautiful, but I can't quote by heart, describes how much he misses not being in yeshiva. It's a beautiful paean to, to, to Lundus, how, how, how much your soul is, 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 in, is, is enhanced and, and, and the beauty and the enjoyment of, of real yeshiva shalomus. Because he was really a litvashir yeshiva bacha. But he's not doing that now. He, he misses it because now he learns an hour a day, but he's running around and very busy in Sochi Tzibur. And then he wrote this line, which Rabbi Lichasin quoted, and here, here's the personal part. I remember, it by, I remember it by heart from then, and I don't have a very good memory. Aval, kimdumani, shetzarich adam liyot, tzadik gadol bechasid gamur, k'day lehakriv, al bamat ha-Torah, et ha-Torah atzma. person has to be a tzadik gamur, it's a person needs to be a tzadi gomer and a chassid gadol to sacrifice on the altar of Torah the Torah itself. Because he wanted us to to be able to do that. Now, what's the conflict? What's the contrast between etat Torah atzma and bamata Torah, the, the the altar of Torah? There's no question. I mean, we were sitting in Shia at the time, and it was a great Shia. And obviously, it was totally devoted to Talmud Torah Lishma, in the Velazhin sense, in the Nefesh HaChayim sense. But what Mavalyam Elia described in the first half of the letter was religious experience. Something which, which, which Rishayim wouldn't understand. Something which less sensitive people wouldn't understand. But, but good Jews, Jews who love HaKadosh Baruch Hu, who love Torah, 
do understand. It's a beautiful experience. It's a religious experience. It fills you with it. it, it, it it's, it's one enjoyable, two rich, three valuable for connection to Kodesh Baruch Hu. It's what many, many people search for in Yiddishkeit and religion. A closeness to God, etc., etc. But what the letter said, what Lichtenstein found in that letter, and it was so true of what he was all the time uh, conveying to us was, that's not what you were created for. You weren't created for it to have a a, a wonderful religious experience. You weren't created to become close to God. You were created to serve God. And therefore, paradoxical statements, It's Sometimes when you have a certain experience when you're very young, so you know, it made a big experience, it made a big impression on you, but you're not sure it made a big impression on anybody else. So for me, this, this sentence apparently is engraved. That's how I remember it. But that doesn't mean that Lichensi thought it was a great sentence. It just happened to have quoted it. Uh, a couple of years ago, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, we were sitting in Shivad Ramim, and suddenly, I don't remember the context, so I suddenly came up, and so I was sitting opposite, opposite him at the table, and I just looked up and I said, you know, it's Vichadam Liyot Sadiq Gamur, and he smiled, and he finished the sentence. It really was, I mean, just like I know it by heart, you know, he knew by heart, truth is, that's not fair. He knew everything by heart, but no, no, no this you could see, like, I just had to get him started. It was a sentence which really uh, exhibited uh, a, a central motif. I'm sure you've all heard a lot of things, and you've read, and you've heard from people how Vukasim was good at A, and good at B, and good at C, and good at D, and it's a very impressive thing, you know, like he was, you know, he was the biggest London around, and then he was a great, uh, he was a good Jewish philosopher, a great Jewish philosopher, and he, uh, and, 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 and literature, and a few other things which I'll mention, which I think are all important, uh, so he, if you're best in A, best, you know, somebody, many people are best in A, he's best in A, best in B, C, D, and E, D, okay, that's all very impressive. But the truth is, the reason why it had an influence on us, I think, influence on me, wasn't because he was the biggest lamb that I met. He wasn't that. The Bible was a big lamb. Uh, it wasn't because he was the biggest A, B, or C. It was the unity of it all. And the unity of it all, like I said before in the beginning of the story, in the very beginning, I just said, you know, the unity between, between sensitivity and midos and caring for the Jews behind the Iron Curtain and Talmud Torah, now encompassing all kinds of other things. The unity was... If you're a real, if you're committed, if you have a really commitment that you live in order to, 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 to serve a Kaddish Baruch Hu, so every possible thing that can serve that fits in. And almost everything should fit in because if it exists, it can possibly help you to serve, to, to, to serve God. In our world today, where we're living in, in many senses, a, a, a dangerous and inimical world, I don't mean physically, I mean spiritually, so many people have the attitude of of, of opposition. You know, the, the world is dangerous. There's a lot of bad influences. The Western world, immorality, and fear, etc., etc., etc. So we have to fight it off, and we strengthen ourselves. We give a good education. I'm not say talking about you know going into the ghetto and and, and building up the walls of the Kavadi sense. But even internally, you have to you have to fight against the bad things in the world. A lot of Jews, probably more of us, uh, without thinking too much. Accept it. We just accept the world because we want to have the best of all worlds. So we'll be, we'll dive in, in the morning and we'll go to our cruise to, uh, to the Virgin Islands in the afternoon and, uh, we just want to have everything. Ravavan was neither accepting, but they never, not even close to being in opposition. Not that he wasn't opposed to things, but the idea that you define yourself as being how you fight off the world. The world is the stage on which you operate. Our world. We were born in this world. 
this would, uh, there could be exceptions if you, if he was living in, I don't know, if he was living in communist Russia, I think he would have gone into a basement and just closed the doors and put up film. But in the normal sense, we'll be living, that's the stage that God gave you. And you have to do is not accept it because it's there, and not destroy it because it's bad, but simply, you just use it all. It's just, it's part of your life. That's what I mean by normalcy. So, some things you have to watch out for, some things you have to reinterpret, some things you have to use, but it's all, it's all part of your life. Nothing is there just to be stomped on and, 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 and fled. And therefore, there's a passage that for years I've thought about in the context of Avarin, uh, the end of the passage. Now that he's not with us, which was the beginning of the Pasuk. It's the Pasuk from Eicha, but it, it, it resonated in my mind, I think, I think almost from the beginning when I met him. It's a Pasuk that talks about there, it's, a, it's an Eicha, so it's a sad Pasuk. Ruach apeinu Mashiach Hashem. Nilkad v'shchitotans. When Yoshiao was killed in the war with, uh, with Paro. Yoshiao HaMelech. So he's called Ruach apeinu Mashiach Hashem. Nilkad v'shchitotam. Asher amarnu be'oro nechyeh bagoyim. I'm not sure what Yirmiyahu Melech meant, but he said that he was so upset when Yoshai was killed because he had, he thought Yoshai was the Mashiach. In what sense? He would lead us to live in this complicated world. And for years, I've thought about, that. My, my connection to Vaman was, not that he would teach me Torah, which he did. Not that he would teach maybe Musa A, B, and C. He would, just, he would give us an idea how to live in this complicated, complicated world. And Basof, in the Chinami, in the we no longer we no longer have him. I no longer have him to lead us through this complicated world. I describe a few things that uh, come to my mind in this context, and I'll try to share them with you. Um, what does it mean the totality of Avodas Hashem, and, and and how that affects those who 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 grew up with him? I want you an, an, an interesting fact. Um, because of the nature, because of my age, so most of the people I think of who are my uh, my contemporaries, like myself, were Talmidim Avarin uh, 50 years ago. And the truth is that most of these people, also because of the maybe because of the job I'm in, are themselves. They're Rabbanim or Machanchim or etc., etc., etc. So it's a little bit unfair. These are people who are actually engaged in Avodah Hashem. They're, they're, they're in the army. They're serving in the army. But we were all Talmidim... I mean, I've been here for 50 years, okay, but that doesn't make a difference. The really important years were the first two. Many of these people weren't. They were lived by Obama 50 years ago, and then they went to do what they did. And it's the nature of the world. I mean, I, I had other Rebbeim who were very important to me. They're in my past. You know, I'm very ha- thankful that in this particular year, I learned A, B, and C. All the people I know, and we're talking about important people, themselves, Gdolin, are today, when you speak to them, about Rav Lichtenstein, they speak in awe. There's a big difference between children, by children, I don't mean children, I mean youth, who are in awe of their Rabbeim, because the difference is so great, you're, you're, totally, you're totally dependent on them. So you come to Yeshiva, your Rabbeim, uh, some of them uh, are like, are like uh, it's very different when you speak to people who are in their 60s, someone who's 80, okay, so he's 20 years older, and smarter. But nonetheless, Will, will speak. And the reason is, not because he's so much greater than them, but because what they're doing today, the direction in their lives, they got from Avon. They, they view themselves as Talmidim of Avon, not because they learned by him once, but because he taught them, And personally now, for myself, that began. The crucial moment was, I remember the day. 
I was a I was a young basketball playing American kid, and I continued to play basketball afterwards also with Ravana. But he, he called me. There was like after meeting him and having a certain amount of time in Shia and meeting him and knowing him and hearing from him, he gave a not by saying what to do, but he gave me a direction where to go in life. To commit myself to something. All those people, and maybe it's the truth that I, I have to tell the truth. Yeah, maybe this is not the truth. This is really explaining why it was so extraordinary. He wasn't the greatest orator in the world. He didn't uh, adopt special speaking techniques that would be amazingly influential. And he's highly intellectual. He didn't give didn't give kumzitzes. Didn't talk Musa very much. To tell you the truth, uh, when I was in the shir, we had shir five times a week, two hours at a time. And um, you know where I get my idea that she has to be two hours long. So one hour in the week, the second hour on Sundays was a sheer hashkafa. It's called in Shvat Yom Nachshava. It was very highly intellectual. I'm fairly certain that of the 35 boys in the room, 30 were sleeping. I wasn't. I have a it's like intellectualism, but he wasn't. It, it wasn't that he was a great, you know, like a guru. He wasn't a religious figure who could, you know, sweep up the crowds. And that's why it's so extraordinary. Okay, maybe it's not fair. Maybe a lot of the Tabidim, you know, who were there didn't appreciate it so much. Those of us who I know, those of us who got a direction, it wasn't from what he said A, B, or C. It was from the example of his life. So I'm going to mention a few, a few, a few points. And these are the A, Bs, and Cs I mentioned before. There's knowledge, sensitivity, Midos, Talmud Torah, Shmir HaSavitzos. So, let me mention a few things. Uh, Talmud Torah. Yeah, it was a big Talmud Chacham. That's true. He also knew Shasvayat, and he knew all of Yishayim and Shasvayat. And here's an interesting point, which is very technical in terms of learning, but I think it's indicative. Generally speaking, there are two kinds of Talmud Chachamim in the world. The Gemara says this. The Sinai in Okahal. People who know Shasvayat, and people who... Okay, I'll have a bit of a biscuit. People who can learn. People who can, who can analyze. Uh, if you do it often enough, you get a lot of bikis as well. Um, so, Rav Lutzenstein really, really knew Shasvayat. And he had, the whole thing was organized. In other words, like all that we showed him in the right place. He had an annoying habit sometimes, which had to do with, with the fact that it was normal to him. It wasn't that he, he, he thought he was extraordinary in it. If you ask him a question, I, saw, I remember once asking him a question about something. And he said, oh, well, you know, the, the Tosos and Zvachim. So, uh, 20 years ago, I would have said, uh-huh, and it would have gone away and asked somebody else to help me out. By that time, I was already getting a little bit used to him. I was getting over my initial fear of the first 20 years. So I actually said to him, which toast was in Zvachim? What daf? You know, it was like the whole shas was, was open in front of him. With the Rishonim, with the Tosvas. I asked him a question. I didn't ask a question on that daf. It was a question about something else. But it, that was where the answer, that was where the answer was found. Now, it's famous that as opposed to other people, many other dolim, who you ask him a kasha, they'll give you the terrors. Because their job is to is to crack is to crack a kasha, to to solve a problem. So Lechzin was had this total picture, which he tried to present in Shia, of how you know all the different aspects of the sugi, how they all organized. So you can say that was a particular way of learning. It's a very difficult one to convey. Very few Talmudim have picked it up, including myself. I don't do it. Um, but why did he do it? It's it was I think it was it was it was the Baruch Hashem. It was like you you have to know everything. You know it's Tavas Hashem. 
So not that he, not that he wasn't, to, to answer a difficult question, he could do that too, he did it. But that wasn't the job. You know, so, somebody would do that. But it was to know it all, and to know it all wasn't, because he was very smart and wanted, wasn't to memorize daf after daf, but to see it, and organize it as a picture, which he then would convey in the Shurim Klodim in Yeshiva. And why you in Yeshiva? In Yeshiva, uh, finals. Every semester there's a final. In Gemara. Mishvat HaRetzion, there are no. There are no tests. And I didn't discuss this with him, but I know that he always toyed with the idea of, so he thought there were good things to have for tests. There was at least a few years in Yeshiva where he gave voluntary tests to his year. And the them voluntarily, some of them took the tests. And then he voluntarily marked them. Sometimes. Yeah, but it basically never, it never took off in yeshiva. But there, there were mandatory tests. So my first test, again, I was very young. My first final, uh, he marked, and uh, he marked it at you know with comments, and it uh, it wasn't you know what it's supposed to say. He had to analyze, etc., etc., etc. And I also had a report card, and he gave me a mark. The mark was okay. I, I was a good talmud, but he also wrote a comment in the report card, which I had no choice. I had to show it to my mother. Uh, the comment said, "You're learning very, very well, but you still haven't." I remember the words. You haven't cracked open the sugya. I had no idea what he was talking about. How do you crack open the sugya? Today I know what he's talking about. He's okay, so you knew the answer to the questions. Apparently, as far as I know, I got a very good mark on the test. I answered every single question correctly. But he sensed that I was like, I memorized the answers. But I didn't... This, the mastery, the idea that you're not learning because you have to know the answers. You're learning because you want to be a baltola. You want to be... This is, this, is, this is what God gave you. So he thought I wasn't... I hadn't yet... Till now, <laughs> I hadn't I had achieved it. And um, talk about midos. You know, there are there are, there are big tzaddikim in the world. It's a funny thing. Uh, you know, in the last two years, people told a lot of stories. People accumulate stories. Yeshiva sent out letters to all the talmidim to send in stories. And I read this stuff, and I heard this stuff, and people describe them. None of the stories I heard told. People tell stories about Ravaran Behit Palut. You know, how one time this happened to me, and I was in. He did the following, and they really they're amazing stories. They're amazing stories. None of those amazing stories amazed me. What anybody amazed me? Okay, it's true. I've been around for a long time. I spent 50 years with Ravaran. I mean, they were, that's what he did. It was normal. I, I have to admit, I heard one story, I don't remember the details, so I'm not going to tell you. A year ago, someone told a story that I remember said, wow, that was like something out of the one of the books. Usually when you read about Chafetz Chaim, you read these stories about Greg Dolan, it's like amazingly weird and extraordinary and difficult uh, uh, actions. So, like, what's a typical Ravaran story in Midas? This story was told by three different people in the week of uh, in the week of Shiva, and I think someone ever saw it. And it, would, it wasn't amazing. I could have made it up. That's what I'm saying. If I didn't know, if I if you had asked me what happened when, I would have I would have given the right answer. So, someone tells a story. One, once upon a time, I hope you can follow me now because it's a little bit beyond your ken. It was before the age of smartphones and email. There was something called payphones. You put in a coin and you could call. Amazingly enough, it was connected by a wire to your parents' house and you were able to call. And Yeshiva had payphones in the Mavoah, which was right next to his office. And basically it was for you to call at night, you could call home. But occasionally someone would call the Yeshiva because they had to speak to his child or, or, or something like that. So three different people told the following story. What happened is the payphone would ring and whoever was, usually somebody bottling, somebody wandering around in the Mavoah, went for a drink, would answer the phone and say, what is it? And he would go do it. Avon was in his office, came out, answered the phone. Someone said, uh, is Yanko Pippelflecha there? He would say, one second. He would go up into the base letters, go over to Yanko Pippelflecha and say, 
your mother's on the phone downstairs. Now, that's not, that, that's, that's not an incredible Muslim story, is it? I mean, to me, it is. Of course he would do that. It was so plush to me. Now, it's true, many golden wouldn't, because there's a lot of people on them. And the other ones, maybe would do it, but they wouldn't do it themselves. They'd ask somebody else, go speak Yaakov, Pefa, Pefa, because they realize what a, how do you say this in English, a fadicha. It was such, it's, so, it's so embarrassing for the Talmud to have the Rosh Hashiva come tell her that his mother's calling him on the phone. I never thought twice. It was such a double pasha that, you know, <laughs> calls on the phone. See, so you go call the kid and tell him, and tell him to, and tell him to answer, and tell him to answer the phone. What amazing is that three different people, at least three people, told this story as being, wow, you know, such a great story. And I'm saying that, yeah, of course it's a great story, but, 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 but of course it's true. If you'd asked me what would I would do when the phone rang, I would have said exactly that's what he's going, that is what he's going, that's what he's going to do. And something a little bit more extraordinary. Uh, starting in, uh, when I was a child, 1970, in the 1970s, early 1970s, gasoline in the United States, uh, petrol for the uh, Brits, cost 30 cents a gallon. Okay, after, after Yom Kippurim, the organized OPEC, uh, the prices reached a dollar, dollar fifty, what's it today, two dollars a gallon. Prices went up a lot. There was a big, and in Israel especially, where there was a difficulty getting oil, but other places as well. So there was an energy crisis. For years, my mom would be invited to different things, to a wedding or to speak someplace, and he would go by bus. Uh, he wasn't 80 at the time, okay? He was in his 40s and his 50s. He would go by bus. Now, it wasn't because he was being cheap. The, his gas his gas mileage was paid by the yeshiva. It was, and this I have to admit, it would never occur to me to do myself, never. He said, there's an energy crisis. You know, like, it, it, it's ridiculous to have, if we would take, he had a station wagon, he would take the station wagon and burn those station wagons got five kilo to a uh, five uh, uh, five kilometers to a to a liter. It's ridiculous to burn that when you can go on a bus to someone's wedding. I should also point out that Bachar and Yeshiva didn't think that they should send them a cab either because that's the way he did. And that's a different kind of a midah. You know, it's a, the midah tziburit. They thought we have an achrayus to the world to uh, to uh, take care of uh, the energy crisis, even though I would imagine it wasn't comfortable at all. I don't travel by bus. And, but he would always travel by bus. Something even more tziburi, which is a famous story that people in Yeshiva know. When certain public things took place in Israel, because he's a public figure as well, the protest against immoral behavior. He and Ravi Tal will signed a protest against Sabin Shatira. Some would even think even more brave and more difficult uh, against, I'm not going to mention names, but Rosh Yeshiva in Eretz Yisrael, who said something about something that took place in the war in Lebanon, in praise of a certain activity that took place. Uh, Rosh Hashiva, who was a colleague in the Good Yeshivot there, and Ivan thought that it was a Chilol Hashem of the First Order and issued a public, and issued a public protest because B'makom Sheh, Sheish Chilol Hashem, Ein Chokim Kavol Levav. Sensitivity. I'll start from the beginning. Uh, in a Sikha that the Lichtenstein also gave once a year when I was in Yeshiva, Yeshiva University, so he would uh, he would speak about secular studies, why it's good, why Talmud Chacham has to have a secular education. He had a very specific idea of what secular education meant. As he was often he often admitted he wasn't interested in mathematics, even though the Rav pressured him a number of times to study mathematics. They said didn't interest him. He had uh, he only had a mild curiosity about science. He was talking about humanistic education. The year that I was in the Shia, there was a fire in the yeshiva dormitory in, I believe, Baltimore. Philly? In Philadelphia. There was a fire in the dormitory, and three bachim were killed in yeshiva, yeshiva in Philadelphia. 
And so it was a big, it was a big Levaya, and, uh, you know, it made a big impression. It was a really, it was a terrible thing. And he went to Levaya, and he came back, and he described to us how one of the Russia yeshiva gave this hesped that he thought was terrible. Terrible hesped means, this is another topic we're not going to talk about, terrible hesped means getting up and saying, uh, you know, they were all tzaddikim, and it was for the good, and God is now taking care of them. Yeah, just he thought it was insensitive, the way it was said. He said, if that man had gone to college and read a little Shakespeare, he could never have given such a, such a terrible hesped. This is, it was a standard yeshivish hesped. But he thought it was just this, they, that you, you're speaking to the people's parents and to the people's chaverim and just give this, you know, this sort of platitude, the religious platitudes. It's, it comes about because, and this was a particular example, is why you should read Shakespeare. But that's not the point. My point is that you think of how something affects all the people, all the people around you. This took place in Psak as well. Now I, my memory is not working, so I can't remember the exact details. I have to take it to me more or less on on, 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 on trust. An example somebody gave me, uh, he went to ask Avamin, his parents, his father was old and in the hospital. Very difficult situations which people have when their elderly parents are in the, are in the hospital and you don't know whether to do uh, a very aggressive treatment in order to prolong their life, a great pain to them. Uh, you know, questions of medical ethics. So he went to ask Avaran Ashayla about a certain thing. I don't remember the details. And, but, but the point is, answer wasn't yes or no. I knew the answer. So Avachik Shaila, won't have money actually have options. But he said to him, you know, don't do it, don't go speak to him today, because he probably, I don't remember the details anymore. Think of it, your father, your father probably wants to do this tomorrow, so wait another two days. When you give a psak, most people when they give a psak, you know, serious psak. So they give you the right answer. All of this psak, I have some other questions as well. The psak involved, how does it affect the person I'm speaking to? And totally irrelevant. I had a personal example with me, this wasn't a psak, it was a near psak, but how you pass it. I once had an argument with him. I was, uh, I, I did a lot of work once on uh, halachic, medical ethics I was having to do with uh, fertility and infertility. And I had a certain negative opinion about uh, certain uh, engineering techniques, certain forms of artificial treatment for infertility. And so I presented my theory to him. And he listened and he said, I, I knew he didn't agree before I presented to him. I presented my theory to him. He said, well, you know, let's say I would agree with you. The point was my arguments weren't based on the Gemara someplace. It was based on what we call meta-ethics, meta-halacha. The general uh, attitude of halacha towards this particular kind of fitting. He said, let's say I would agree with you. But how could you present that to the couple who was suffering but not, not having children. Because you're dealing in certain philosophical feelings about what's the proper way, but they, they have a particular problem. How would that, how could you imagine presenting that, whether it's right or wrong? Same thing took place in the Hesper he gave for Shalom Zalman Urbach. So he mentioned, oh, I don't think it's about Shalom Zalman Urbach. Shalom Zalman has like a million psak under his, under his name. Okay? He mentioned hearing aids on Shabbos. Rav Shalmazaman was matir hearing aids. Now, I know for a fact that Rav Aaron didn't agree with the heter. Or at least he didn't. When I say he didn't agree, means he didn't understand. He didn't accept that. He didn't, he didn't, he wouldn't sign on the heter. The heter isn't that, say, there's a heter. But what Shalmazaman said when he gave the heter was, what's the alternative? The alternative is that this person should live 24 hours in silence. If you can't switch the battery, on your, uh, or even use. If you can't use your hearing aid on Shabbos, that means that old people or people who need them are going to spend Dafka Shabbos Kodesh in what? In isolation? 
you have to find the heta. So Avada didn't say he did talk to us about the mechanics of the heta. He talked to us about how this attitude he, he was. It was a hesped. He talked about the shevach of Shlomo Zalman. He was speaking from the left. I'm giving you a story about the Shlomo Zalman that was a story about Avada. That that you know when you have to when you treat a shayla, everyone knows you treat a shayla. You're supposed to think of the consequences. It was automatic. You're like how how was the how is this psak going to affect the people? That it's involved with, and then uh, that—that's you have to be sensitive, super sensitive to that uh, to that as well. And it's a fact. I know this for a fact that he didn't give the same answer to different people. I know your answer was always tailored to the person he was speaking to because part of it was how how you're going to understand this particular this particular thing. Uh, to give you one final example, which is different, not too much, but the same idea. Um, they have now. Uh, you can see it on Longshvut on Shabbos. You know, the people driving around on Longshvut in little electric carts, uh, based on a header from the Summit Institute, <coughs> how to run these things on Shabbos. Which is kind of what's called a gramasuch. Not a Pashat header. Um, all the people using it are the people who need it. For one reason or another. They cannot walk. You don't have to walk on Shabbos. But it means you can't go to shul. It's not, it's nefesh. You can stay home. But it's a serious problem on Chavez. So there's this machine that's sold by Mechon Summit in Olam Shvut to allow people to uh, use this in... Uh, and people are Samechan. Somebody I know uh, needed it. His Rebbe was about the Chassin. He asked him. I'm not privy to the, to the thing. All I know is that it took two weeks to get an answer. So you say, am I, am I being critical? <laughs> Takes two weeks to get an answer. That's not a good thing. It took, it didn't take a more, it didn't take two weeks to figure out the lumbers. Okay, that, that, that did not take two weeks. In the end, oh, I should give the answer. In the end, he told him it was okay. I suspect very shrugly that he wasn't convinced it was okay. There was an elevator, a Shabbos elevator in Shabbat Havetzion, that was put in because on the one hand, Shabbat Havetzion made everything accessible, but it was also put in because a Wilkinson broke his hip. He never used the Shabbos elevator. It was put in for him. Beheta Shalom. They didn't put it in against his will. He said it was okay. He checked which one they should put in. As far as I know, he never used it. I'm sure he never used it. In the end, he gave the heter because, uh, more or less, I, I'm not, I didn't ask him, but what I just said now, could the person, could you really tell somebody to stay home? You had to find a proper heter. It was Mama Shasubiyasa. But the part of the consideration, the two weeks of thinking was whether or not the heter was good enough. The heter, which he knew. He checked out the heter. Grammar is the Gemara. You learn Shabbos. There's a Gemara. Well, maybe you learn Grammar. I taught Grammar. There's a Shaila about whether Grammar is meant on Shabbos. When and under what conditions. Okay, so he knew the Sugi. There's nothing, there's no, there's no big Kiddush there. He checked out the details. But then the consideration was this particular person. It was also a person who had been Mahri. If you told him no, he wouldn't have done it. That took him two weeks to, that took him two weeks to give, to give the answer. And one final, uh, area that I want to talk about because it's less spoken of, Malzuchensin was a huge machmi. So we don't talk about that very much because most of us live in a, uh, in an aviva and an atmosphere that says that coolers are good and chumas are bad. So we don't like talking about it. He was a big machmi. For himself and for other people as well. Uh, when it wasn't the kind of shah just says now, stop a shah, but you can do something like a Chavez. He was a big mahal. I once had a discussion with him, which I never got to the final answer. Um, um, about what I got somebody in the kollel asked the Lichtenstein whether you have you can for a child whether you can give a child you can wind up the um, the spring on a little car you know the car with a with a key and a spring whether it's put on Shabbos it's metakein mana car doesn't work until you until you fix it until you do the spring but that's what's called the takein mana not. 
So my man thought it was Asa. He told him it was Asa. So I just seen that Sugi went. So I said to him, uh, well, if that's Asa, then how can you open the door of the base medrash? Because when you open the door of the base medrash, you're compressing a spring, which then closes the door. It's exactly the same. So you can get out of the base medrash. Now, the truth is, this took place in the middle of Davening and Shabbos. So he said, hmm, I have to think about that. I never, I never bothered to get the rest of the answer. Uh, but this is something which it says the Shul Shabbos Chassus Mutu, and he said it was Asa. Why do you say it's Asa? It, and the truth is, if there were two days, Ravad would, would be Machmin. This is Machlok Sishon, he's going to be Machmin. That was part of his Abodah Hashem in a very simple manner. I know that we've heard a lot of propaganda against Chumas. Ravad thought that if you have a suffix, you should be Machmin, because we're doing God's will. You don't take a chance on things like that. He knew how to be Machmin when it was important. But Chumas was part of the, part of Os Hashem. You have to know exactly how to eat matzah. You have to know how to blow shofar. You might have noticed that Yeshiva Tavitzion blows 102 kolos in Rosh Hashanah, which is now what it says. In, it's, not, it's not a big Chumas, but there's another two kolos there and it's based on. There are four shitas. You have to be also four shitas. Why? How can you be Mvata and shitas? So you combine a few and you get to 102 kolos instead of 100. And if you cook a few more kolos, it'll be more kolos. And it was pretty machmed case as well. I can be made. From my own uh, experience, it wasn't easy to get a tkia, at least not in the good years, it wasn't easy to get a bad tkia, bad, a, a, a bad tkia past them. Because one time they, were, they, they found a mistake in the Sefer Torah. Halacha psuka, you found a mistake, you read the same, you, you, you go back to the aliyah in which you read and you read it again. That's, that's the final psak in all the achronim. So Ravavid got up on the spot and said, well, you know, that's true in Balabatim because of the problem of Tirchad Sibura. But there's the yeshiva, no one here is going anywhere. You guys are all sitting here waiting for lunch. The Ram thinks okay, but according to the other sheet, I remember which sheet the Rashba, we read the whole Pashal. It wasn't for, you say he's machmed for himself. No, he was machmed for us. He was machmed for 500 people. He was a big machmed. If there's a suffix in two possibilities, so you should go to Chumrah. You should go to Chumrah. And, 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 and if you have left it, you would do is that, is that a terrible thing? There's a unified, a unified vision that I exist to serve HaKadosh Baruch and And those of us who, who were privileged to see it and to learn it, I think that's what affected us. That's what made us into Talmidim. Not this shita or that shita. There was also, they also taught us how to learn, taught me how to read how to read Rambam. But, but, that he gave us Ech Lichyot Ba'olam, Ech Lichyot Ba'goyim. How to take the world as it is and utilize it and, and subjugate it to the will of God and make ourselves to be subject to the will of God. And that, and, and to do it in a manner that's not crazy or fanatic or, or, or revolutionary, but using everything, all the things that you can learn. So your education is part of that and, and understanding the world is part of that and, and reading to have to understand the world. So your sensitivity to the world, understanding people, understanding halacha. Everything is part of how we can make the world a better place, how we can make the world something which serves, which serves a Kaddish Baruch. I want to add one thing at the end. Um, I was wondering about this, the purpose of this meeting. Because, generally speaking, I mean, this is, this is a kind of a hesped. Hespedim are given after people die. Why? What's the point in my trying to describe uh, why I think Ravaran Lichtenstein was very important to me. And maybe why he should have been important to you had you been here. But you weren't. And you're showing that now. So what are you supposed to learn from this? So some classical Espedim, 
It might be to tell you. You should be the same one. In other words, I tell stories about uh, Gedolim. It's to inspire the congregation to do the same thing. That's why if the stories are too great, so nobody really learns from them. But that's not I. That, but that's not what I try to do. I try to explain what were the qualities of this person that made it important for me. But I was there, so that's why it was important to me. But what are you supposed to? What are you supposed to get from this? It's too late for you to now pay more attention. The truth was, in the years when Nevan was alive. So sometimes I would try to get Tavidim to pay attention, to see, because he's such an ordinary person in so many ways, you could miss it. Uh, people didn't realize, because he was facing the wrong direction, how Avaren would be crying during Shir Hashirim on Yom Yerushalayim. Uh, for years, I had this, I didn't see it either, I just knew it was taking place. I really wanted, I wanted to see what his face looks like when you say, Shubi Shubi Hashunam, Shubi Shubi Benechazabach. Because I could see that he was getting all How do you do that? He's facing the wrong direction. I was embarrassed to get up and do what you have to do, which is to, Push, walk in front and put your face in front of him and, and, and see. So, probably the time was running out. I, probably one time I went all the way on the other side, from a Mital side, and I tried to get, by looking behind the Alankarish, it didn't work. I never got to see his face. But I occasionally I would say, you know, I try to get the guys to appreciate it because I sometimes thought that people weren't appreciating it enough. Because it was such a, you know, a regular guy, no beard, you know, no baseball scores. They could miss it. But anyhow, but now it's too late. So, I'll tell you what I think. And it's a complicated thing. What, what was my point here? My point was, not that you should now learn from Avana, because it's too late. But by showing, by trying to describe the normalcy, is perhaps you should be now more sensitive to do it from others as well. Avana's Tamidim, or any other people, that to, to, this derech, this derech of taking the world that we're living in, and using it to be totally committed the extreme here is not the extremism. Totally committed to being normal. Totally committed to taking everything by Bodhis Hashem. <coughs> but that's something which, if you didn't see the original, so maybe, maybe if you, if you know how to look for it and understand it, you'll see it in the models, in the, in the, in the reproductions. You know, if you go to buy a Rembrandt, so it costs, uh, 12, uh, 12 million bucks. Now, on the internet, you can order a copy of a Rembrandt for $500. So there are some people who would say, it's not the same thing. They're probably right. But between you and me, if we bought the reproduction, it'd be just as good. I, after I convinced my wife to shell out $500, I planned to buy one Rembrandt that way. She said, what do you do when people walk into the house and they're going to say, what, you stole a Rembrandt? I said, yeah, okay, you know. It's just as good, almost. Even though there's a tremendous difference. So, I, I, my, my goal here is, if it's possible, is to get you to learn to look at the reproductions, the vague reproductions, the, the, the fisted reproductions, because they're not on the same, they're not on the same level. And perhaps also learn from there, not a chiddush here or a chiddush there, but to learn what I tried to learn or what I, what I, what I did learn to a certain extent, maybe didn't carry out enough, is ech lichyot bagoyim, to be, to be charged, to be, to get the mission, of that we're here to the to use the world to make the world a better place to be to be a Bodhis Hashem. I mentioned this. This is the line that I, I use. This line I, I spoke to Hesper two years ago at the Levaya. So I'm just going to repeat it now because I think it's meaningful. When Elisha leaves Eliyahu, Eliyahu goes up with Salah Hashemayma, and his Adevet Adevet Eliyahu falls. Eliyahu picks it up. He's on the other side of the Yarden. And he goes back to the Yadain. They cross the Yadain because Eliyahu split the Yadain to allow them to cross. Now they go back and there's water there. 
And Eliyahu has to cross the Yadin. He's holding a Deret Eliyahu, but he doesn't know that the water is still there. So Elisha says, Ayei Hashem Elokei Eliyahu. And then he hits the water and it splits. And then the Talmidim on the other side, the Bnei Nebim on the other side, uh, know that he is the worthy successor of, uh, of uh, Eliyahu. That expression is something which should give any of us, the education that we've had, should give us the shudders. Elisha is praying to God, and he says, Aye Hashem Elokei Eliyahu. I mean, Eliyahu was a great man, but I mean, Hashem Elokei Yisrael, or Elokei Vam Yisrael Yaakov. None of us have ever prayed to Elokei, somebody we knew. In the Tanakh, you know, uh, Yitzchak Avinu can say, uh, or Yaakov Avinu can say, Pachad Yitzchak Avinu. Say that, that was where all began. But in our experience, we're very, I think we're careful. We, we don't want to do something like that. Shmokhu is, is bigger than Why Why did here, did Elisha say, it's the only time he says it, this, Hayei Hashem Elokei Eliyahu. It indicates the importance, right? I began by saying, the, the great man history, the theory of history, the importance of the personal contact. There's nothing I learned from Ablichenstein that I couldn't have learned someplace else. Give or take. Ah, But it's all in the spelling somewhere. Or there'll be someone else who'll figure it out at some other time. But the truth is that Torah is taught Ishmi Piyish and your connection to Torah and your connection to Kodesh comes from the people who instilled it in you. And Elisha had a problem. He had to cross the river, and the river wasn't crossable. He was at a crisis. And at that point, he said, "What my ability to cross this river, in that case, talking about Nisim of, of Eliyahu and Elisha, so it's really true, comes from what I got from, I got this from Eliyahu. I didn't get from any place else. And in that sense, he said, he didn't ask Eliyahu to help him. He said, Ayei Hashem Elokei Eliyahu, Vayach ba'aderes ha'amayim vayifku amayim. And that allowed him that's how you. That's how you split. When you come to an obstacle, when you come to the, the the end of the road, you can split that rock and go forward. If you have something, a direct connection to the person who who, who taught you how to move forward, taught you how to walk. Elisha was taught how to walk by Eliyahu, and when it didn't work on his own koach, so he appealed to Hakadosh Baruch Hu. But who was his God? His God wasn't this something we learned from books, something you learn from <coughs> theology. You know, something that's vague or... It was personal. It was the God he'd been taught to by his Rebbe. Ayei Hashem Elokei Eliyahu. For those of us who were Zohar to be direct Hamidim. So, sometimes that's what happens. You you take a step forward because it's a Kosh who you got, the God you got from him. Each person has to have, you have to, you can't just hang out in Yeshiva and learn Torah. There's a direct connection to somebody, to something. And that example, what I again repeat, something which I think you can achieve in yeshiva, uh, and the model for us, for the people who are now, was uh, Moreno, and uh, in that sense it can continue. Thank you.